The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we missed last week. Uh, <clears throat> we had a visiting teacher in town. For those of you who weren't here, Ajahn Jyotipalo spoke. And so we're back now looking at the seven factors of awakening, one of the more potent lists that the Buddha used. Most of you know, partly because it was an oral tradition for many hundreds of years and partly just because it's good pedagogy, the Buddha used lists, he used teaching models because they're easy to remember. And one of the more important ones is this list of the seven factors of awakening, the seven qualities, inherent qualities of mind. When they're there, which they always are, but when they're developed and in balance, then they inevitably lead to awakening. Awakening, instead of thinking of it it as some unusual or esoteric experience, awakening is the natural thing the mind does when it's in balance, when it's interested, when it's energized, and relaxed, then the mind begins to naturally see what it normally doesn't see because it's either superficial or reactive or in some state of distraction or denial. And so how would we, why would we expect the mind to see clearly, to have insight, to see things as they are? It doesn't. The mind basically sees what it expects to see. So we're <clears throat> we're setting something in motion by remembering these qualities, and through noticing them, we actually develop them. We're developing these seven factors by noticing them. Where do we notice them? Well, in our mind, right here. And so the seven factors again. We've been talking about this since September. Mindfulness is the governing factor because without this continuity of mindful presence, we don't even know what's present in the mind, like whether the mind's interested or not. We have to be mindful enough just to know whether there's interest, whether there's energy, whether there's joy, this brightness of mind, whether there's tranquility or concentration or equanimity. So these are the seven factors. Mindfulness, interest or investigation, energy, the capacity to apply or to do, right? We have an intention, like to understand or to see something clearly, and then the mind responds to the intention with action. It brings the attention to the object. It connects and it sustains attention. So that's energy or effort, right, to the mind applying itself to the task at hand, whatever that might be, and the joy that builds and the tranquility that comes up with joy and stillness, the stillness of concentration and the impartiality of equanimity. So when these tranquilizing factors and energizing factors are developed and in balance, then we say we have a really powerful mind, a mind that can cut through superficiality 
and even more importantly, the mind that can cut through what it thinks is true and actually see the way things are directly, immediately. Because, of course, the way that our mind works, it's quite dependent most of the time on our fixed ideas of what's happening. It's really not easy to go beyond that. I was talking to Shelley this morning, our office manager, and about, there's a document here, I'm not going to tell you where it is, <laughs> but uh, in a very obvious way, a, world, a word is misspelled. It's a pretty public thing, public document. But it's so interesting how few people notice that this word is misspelled. And why is that? Because the quality of our attention, I, we expect, when we look at this document and this thing, we expect the words to be spelled correctly. So it's like even though there's a letter that, that's there that shouldn't be there, the mind just sort of edits it out, right? And we see what we expect to see, that, oh yeah, that's a beautiful thing. So of course they wouldn't have a misspelled word or a word with an extra letter. And we do this all the time where what we experience, what we see is what we expect to see more than what's actually there. And that, that's just about visual perception or auditory perception, but it's on all levels what we take things to be. Our experience here at Common Ground has more to do with what we expect than what it is here, being here. You go home, it's the same thing. It's actually even more true with places like at home, especially if you're living with other people. And our experience with those other people, our experience in that very familiar space, it's programmed. We expect it to be like it was before, and then we find that, hey, it is like it was before. Because we're not really showing up with mindfulness. But if we develop these seven qualities, then every experience is new and fresh. It's like we're not bored when these seven factors of mind, factors of the heart, are developed, strengthened in balance. The whole world, every moment of experience is um, enlivening and educating in the deepest sense insight arises. So tonight I want to talk mostly about tranquility because we've done a lot of the energizing factors. And it can be helpful to know these factors in a sequential way, although it's best to think of them as a circle. It's not like it ends. But when we have a sense of what mindfulness is, and this is for a, a lot of us, this is where we are in our practice. We don't really even know. We have a, maybe some intu- intuition about what mindfulness is, but it takes a while just to know what mindfulness is. Generally, we think it's more than what it actually is. We basically feel like to be mindful, I have to do something. And we make it a big thing, like, I have to pay attention to this object of experience. And it's like this huge edifice of me who should be paying attention, who needs to. And because we're such a 
uh, as a species, we're very visually oriented. So even if our eyes are closed in meditation, there's a sense of like seeing the experience that we're supposed to be seeing or supposed to be knowing. But what mindfulness really is, it's much more simple than that, which makes it, because it's so simple, it's not so easy to get a sense of what it is. Because, of course, whatever this mind is that's happening here for each of us, this mind is already naturally sensitive. And you or me, nobody has to do anything right now in this moment to make my mind, to make your mind sensitive, right? I always do that. Like, you didn't have to try to hear that sound. You didn't have to make a personal effort to hear the clap. It just, the mind is just sensitive. When emotion arises, the sensitivity of the mind will know that emotion. Or when a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or a touch or a thought or an emotion happens, arises, you know, shows up, then the sensitive mind, or you could say the sensitive heart, is sensitive to that. Unless it's distracted, right? Unless the mind, which is often the case for us, gets absorbed into some drama, some story that I'm narrating to myself, then in a sense, we can uh, undermine or be disconnected from the natural sensitivity. So remember, there is a natural sensitivity and mindfulness isn't, I should be sensitive. It's not that. That's not, that's like an overreach. We don't have to try to be sensitive. The mind is already sensitive. So mindfulness is a remembering or a not forgetting about the sensitivity of the mind. Or we're preventing, mindfulness is preventing the mind from forgetting that things are being known. Things are being known. We can't help that unless our attention gets absorbed into some neurotic or some story, some thinking process, but not mindful of the thinking process, lost in it. Right? There's a difference between planning my next vacation and recognizing that my mind is planning my next vacation. When I'm planning my next vacation, it's very easy, it's common actually, for us to get lost in that thinking activity. So while I'm planning my next vacation, there's no space in the mind that's knowing that thinking is happening, that this thinking we call planning is happening. So that's like another dimension, to know what the mind is doing when it's doing That's what we call mindfulness. So the mind is always sensitive. It's sensitive to thinking and to hearing and to seeing and to touching and to smelling and tasting. But the question is, is the mind aware of what it's sensitive to right now? What's being known right now? Can there be an awareness and not forgetting that the mind is knowing? If the mind is always knowing, it's the very nature of the mind to know. You can't turn it on and off. Just try. Can you shut off 
the knowing of the mind. It's not personal. And this is actually a, a, a very potent discovery of the mind to realize that we can't turn on and off the knowing. That's just its nature. Right? It's not Mark personally trying to know what I'm seeing or personally trying to know what I'm hearing. But the knowing is happening. But there is a particular muscle, mental muscle we can develop, which we call mindfulness, which is I want to keep remembering what the mind is knowing moment by moment by moment by moment. So that's why we create particular trainings. We call meditation techniques, like the particular training to keep the breath in mind. So what we're really, it's not that the breath is special, but keeping the present moment in mind is special. That's a, that's a real trick that has all kinds of positive benefits. So we take up something like, something ordinary like the breath as a physical, right? It's, the breath is, when we're talking about the breath, we're talking about an ongoing stream of physical sensations, right? So we're talking about the physicality of the breathing process, the actual tactile experience of the breathing process. So we don't care about the breathing process as a concept, but that it's producing sensation moment by moment by moment. And we know that the mind is naturally sensitive to sensation. So we use it as a training ground. Okay, can I keep that in mind? That stream of sensation that is that physicality of breathing. Can I practice or train my mind to not forget this stream of present moment happening. Because we want to get, we want to develop that muscle of keeping the present moment in mind. Really, if we get this, get the relevance of this, the continuity of mindful awareness, the whole rest of the path unfolds pretty easily. This is, the, this is the most difficult thing. One, to get what I'm talking about, if you don't already. And two, to be really wholehearted in developing this particular talent, this particular mental muscle, to keep the present moment in mind. So we have particular trainings to do it, but they all involve the specific activity of noticing that in any moment the mind is connecting, is knowing, so catching that, like what's the mind knowing now? The sound of my voice, the comprehension of the words I'm speaking, feeling your body sitting, like what is your mind knowing now? What's being known? That's the same, that's the first moment of mindfulness. And then to sustain that remembering that the mind is knowing and knowing and knowing and knowing. So we need to know the object that's being known, not so much because the object that's being known, whether it's a sound or the sensations of the breath coming in or thought, we need to know the object in order to recognize the present moment that the mind is knowing, is knowing this, is knowing this, is knowing this. Because that's what we're keeping in mind that there is a sensitive mind that's knowing. And now in this moment, the reason I know there's a sensitive mind that's knowing, because in this moment it's knowing this. 
And in this moment, it's knowing that. See, a lot of times when people hear about mindfulness meditation or Buddhist awareness practice, they think it's the object of awareness that's so important. There must be something about the breath or there must be something about looking at the planning mind or knowing the planning mind. But it turns out that what's more important is the knowing mind. That's what we're really interested in. But there's no way to know the knowing mind. But we can know the knowing mind by knowing the objects that the knowing mind is knowing, moment by moment by moment, to sustain that. Okay, So that's what we mean by mindfulness. That's the first of the seven factors. And then you see... Getting even a little sense of mindfulness, then you're going to initiate the three energizing factors of the mind, naturally. Remember, the whole premise that the Buddha teaches out of is that the mind is a natural phenomenon. It's, a, it's the activity of nature. It's not me in the conventional way we think about it, like I have my mind, I'm doing it. No, it's as much nature as weather is nature or the woods or the you know, the Mississippi River or anything else is nature. The mind is nature. So when the Buddha talks about the mind, he always has to talk about it or anything. He's always going to talk about it as a conditional unfolding. There are these many forces at play, interdependently at play, and it sets in motion a very lawful, conditional unfolding. So that has to be true with everything, including the awakening process and the process of being really unskillful and ignorant and you know, suffering. Both the moments in our lives when we're waking up and the mind is becoming more clear, more skillful, more wise and kind, and those moments when our mind is becoming more clouded more reactive, more resistant, less skillful. Both of those happenings can be described as a a natural conditional unfolding. It's not that in one example, Mark's being bad in 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 an ultimate sense. Like there is a guy, we call him Mark, and he's being unskillful, he's being bad. That's our, what we'd call our conventional view. Or Mark's being really good, he's being really wise, he's being really skillful. That's how we normally think about it. But when we pick up these models, the Buddhist teaching, like the seven factors of awakening that we're talking about tonight, the idea is to map out our actual experience of mind as a natural phenomenon. It's their natural forces at play. And the interesting thing is, as the mind understands the mind as a natural unfolding, That's a very powerful intervention. In the same way, when the mind is unaware of the mind as a natural process, that being unaware of the mind has serious implications for what the mind, how the mind is going to be experienced or the results of, you know, having a mind that is unaware that the mind is a natural process. So just in the same way, you know, you might think, you know, taking hallucinogens or going on a Buddhist retreat or fasting or going to a foreign country, 
you know, might be a powerful intervention in terms of its effect on the mind. Well, the most powerful effect on how your mind is, like in terms of shifting your view, more than hallucinogens or more than taking a vacation to a place you've never been, some exotic place, or whatever else you might do to shift your perspective, is to begin to understand the mind as a natural process, to begin to observe the mind as a natural process. So that's basically what the Buddha is doing. He's saying, hey, use this model. You know, he has many, but let's just talk about the seven factors of awakening. Use this model, memorize it, so that you can then use this conceptual model to begin to understand your own mind, not as a concept, but as a process, as a direct experience, as a natural process. Nobody behind it just causes and conditions playing themselves out according to the momentum of those causes and conditions. And it's playing itself out. Well, that's a huge intervention in terms of how the mind understands itself. It, it radically shifts. So that's what we're setting in motion with these seven factors. And in particular, we're understanding the wholesome mind, the mind that is deeply wise, deeply kind, deeply skillful as a natural process. So not a personal thing. Oh, I'm so wise. I'm so skillful. My mind's so steady and balanced. No, but just to see, oh, I understand. That's a natural process. It's come together like this in the skillful way, lawfully, naturally, because these supporting causes and conditions are there. So when we have the continuity of mindfulness, then right, the mind is sustaining this awareness that this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. Now, of course, you're not repeating in your mind necessarily, this is being known, this is being known. I'm just using those words to sort of get a sense that the mind isn't forgetful. It's recognizing in each moment for some period of time that there is this sensitivity, there is this knowing, and now this is, and I know there is this knowing because this is being known now. This is being known. Without that, there's no possibility of the second factor arising, which is interest or investigation. Investigation requires the continuity of mindfulness because it's, an, it's not like I have to investigate. Investigation just happens when there is a continuity of awareness. Because the mind then is having mirrored back to it, this is being known, this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. Because the mind is sensitive, it's now sensitive to what's being mirrored back to it, moment by moment by moment. So it's just unavoidably starting to see how things work. Because mindfulness is mirroring it back. So, in the second factor of investigation or interest is the wisdom factor. It happens naturally when present moment experience is being mirrored back, being recognized moment by moment by moment. The mind just starts naturally to connect the dots. Oh yeah, this, and then this happens, and then this happens, and like starts to see the lawfulness of how things are unfolding. Oh yeah, when there's a lot of greed in the mind, the body gets tight. Everything looks like something I either want or don't want. You know? 
So we just see like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's called comprehension. So when there's the continuity of mindfulness, the mind begins to be interested, begins to investigate. And you know, we like that. The mind likes that. It likes understanding. We have a mind that likes to comprehend how it works. It's just built in. And you see how that leads naturally to the next factor, which is energy. The willingness, energy or effort, is the willingness of the mind to give itself to the task at hand. It's like the energy arises to, in the mind itself to apply itself. To what? Well, to more of that continuity of awareness, mindfulness. So you see there's a feedback system. We get some continuity of mindfulness. It allows some investigation. The investigation bears fruit. The mind begins to comprehend how things are unfolding, how it all works, how one thing leads to another. It's not random. Happiness and unhappiness is not a random occurrence. It's a lawful occurrence according to what's at play and how it's unfolding, how it's interacting. And seeing that it's lawful, energy arises to want to participate, to want to apply itself. Like the mind now knows some things and it wants to apply itself based on what it's seen is true. Like continuity of mindfulness is skillful. That's one of the first things we begin to recognize when we have a continuity of mindfulness, continuity of awareness, and we're investigating, we see continuity of awareness is the most protecting thing in the whole universe. Better than having a gun at home or a million dollars in the bank or a lot of friends that love you is to have the continuity of mindfulness. Really. We don't believe that necessarily until we start to notice how protecting it is. And, of course, the corollary is how dangerous it is to not have the continuity of mindfulness, to be lost in our own projections. You know, we create a story, we get lost in the proliferating circles of that particular drama. Right? We can be mostly absorbed. I mean, I've seen that. <clears throat> the other night, my wife's uh, in the production stage of a play she's involved in, she's choreographing for, and it's, you know, you can imagine they're up late at night working, getting it to a close to production. And uh, so she came in late one night. I was near the end of a BBC series I'm watching and uh, entranced, you know. She's coming in after a long day, being gone for 14 hours or whatever. Wants to share a little bit how the day went. <laughs> It's like, you know, normally I actually care about what she has to say. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like, and even, even if when I shut it off, you know, it's just like my mind was still engrossed in the drama. You know, not my drama. Now I paid Amazon.com four bucks or three bucks, whatever, to see that drama. But you know how it is. It's like uh, we get lost and there's a very real addiction to wanting to continue the drama. And it was the last of the five episodes. And it's like, 
I mean, maybe there's season two coming. I don't know. But it's, it's really, it's interesting how the mind doesn't want to let it go. I'm not going to tell you what it is either. <laughs> so, <clears throat> we have the continuity of awareness. We have investigation. The willingness of the mind to apply itself. Energy. And that, you know, so the mind applies itself skillfully. It acts on skillful intentions, like the intention to be continuously mindful, or the intention intention to be interested, to comprehend how it is that things are unfolding, right? And then you see it that sort of builds the energy in the mind, because of course more of the continuity of mindfulness, more of that pure interest, there's more energy, and it builds and it builds and it builds, and the mind begins to recognize this is all very skillful. Like something good is afoot. And this is the beginning of rapture or joy in the mind. Joy in Buddhism is defined often as the absence of remorse. The mind is not remorseful. Or another way of saying that, the mind recognizes that what it, how it's engaged in the moment right now is really good. And you know, when we see that we're good, we feel good about it. So it's like the energy begins to build and it becomes joyful. It's like, it's not good, but we're, it's good that it's good, right? And then it's good that it's good that it's good. And like that, and you see that it begins like the opposite of a panic attack. You know, the joy begins to build. The mind feels good about itself. It feels good about what it's doing. It feels... It has some intuition that what's being set in motion, the continuity of attention, the interest and comprehension, the willingness to apply itself to the more of the continuity of awareness and the interest and the investigation and the building of energy. And then the joy itself, the fact that it, that the purity, the goodness of it, the absence of greed and aversion, especially aversion now, because it feels like it's on the right track, then the mind begins to experience states of joy. And these can be quite powerful. But even in more ordinary senses, joy is like a buoyancy of the mind, a lightness of the mind, a wieldiness of the mind. Like the mind, it, it's like, um, you know, on a cold day, you know, it takes a while for the body to want to do things or an engine to want to do things. But once it gets warmed up, it's like, doesn't have a problem and that's like the mind is now warmed up and it becomes quite powerful and the joy of of that engine you know like the mind is engaged in wholesome activities it's feeling enlivened by it it's feeling joy well like i said the aversion begins to leave because we're the mind is averse when it wants something to go away but now it doesn't need anything to go away and it starts to feel the effect of the non-aversion, which you could call tranquility or contentedness, ease of the heart. Right? And now we're moving into the tranquilizing factor. So we have tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are the last three. So we have mindfulness, and then three energizing, interest or investigation, the application of the mind or energy, right? the willingness to engage, and the joy that builds. These are the three energizing. And now, 
when there's a lot of joy, it triggers the heart, the averse, bored, reactive, impatient heart begins to relax into contentedness. Ah, this is great. Right? That the mind is humming along in this really great way and it begins to bear fruit, the fruit of tranquility. Ah. And the more tranquility, the more there is that sweetness of contentedness, then something that's even more pervasive and strong, that's more subtle than aversion, begins to disappear. Disappear. Craving and greed in the mind gets pushed into the background. right? Because the pleasantness, the, the sweetness of tranquility is good enough. The mind doesn't desire anything else. And that's a very profound shift because the mind we know is almost always characterized by the agitation of greed. We don't really know the mind without being affected by greed. You see this a lot when you observe wild animals. It's just endemic to the minds of living beings. I mean, that's just who we are. Like uh, Ajahn Amaro, this well-known British monkey says, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? That's, you know, that's the eyes, that's the mind of greed. And it's always operating. Even when we're doing pretty well, like we have a good meal, dinner in our belly, we've got a partner we love, you know, we're still interested, aren't we? And food and mates. And so even when we feel safe and we have a lot, we're still a greedy being. Right? Anybody distinctly, clearly experience their heart or mind not affected by greed? Well, that's what we call concentration. That's the very definition of concentration. So we have tranquility is when aversion has retreated from the mind. Right, The more gross agitating forces of the mind have gone away because the mind has this freedom from remorse. The mind is recognizing that this process of being mindful, of investigating and pouring the heart back into the process of being mindful and investigating how things unfold, it's wholesome. I trust it. I feel like I recognize directly the mind's doing what it's born to do, what it's good to do. I don't have any doubt. I'm not afraid. I trust this, right? So a lot of the grosser agitating forces of the mind have disappeared and the mind begins to relax into tranquility because it feels so good that it's on a good path. It doesn't doubt itself. And then that pleasantness of the tranquility extinguishes greed for a while. Craving begins to retreat or disappear from the mind for a while. And so the mind gets really quiet because... It is greed, the sort of pervasive, never-ending greed that keeps the mind from being peaceful. Peace is, by definition, the mind that doesn't need anything. That's a peaceful state. Do we know the mind that doesn't need anything? Well, generally, we know, kind of, but it's just moments before we fall asleep. We feel safe enough to go to sleep. 
right? I don't need anything, so I think it's safe enough to... But we're not conscious of not needing anything. And the mind gets really quiet, peaceful. It's sort of like, see, when I think I need something, my mind goes out my sense doors to seeing, to hearing, to smelling and tasting and thinking, the activity of thinking. It goes there to see what there is to get that will make me happy. But when I'm feeling already happy and content because of the pleasantness of tranquility, my mind's not going to go out its sense doors. So it, we say in Buddhism, you know, it retreats from the sense gates. They're still seeing, the mind is still sensitive to sights and sensitive to sounds and sensitive to smells and tastes and touches, but it's not attending to those sense gates. It retreats, well, there's only one place it can retreat to. It retreats into the mind itself. So the attention withdraws from sensory experience. It withdraws into itself, into a still and quiet and empty, empty of greed, right? Place in the heart itself. And you could describe it as a place of space or silence or peace, or stillness. But it's very distinct, and we call that concentration. And the more the heart, the mind, recognizes, it's basically the harder mind turning back in on itself. So instead of the energy of the mind going out through the sensitivities it has with seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting, touching and thinking, it's withdrawing from those because it doesn't neurotically think it needs something, because greed has been temporarily quieted. So then the mind has experienced its peaceful, empty, still, silent, spacious center or nature. And we have some experience of concentration or one-pointedness. I'll talk more about that next Wednesday. So these are... And I'll talk, you know, in the future weeks about how then that leads to equanimity. Because the more the heart touches peace, the more it transforms the mind's relationship to sense experience, which is what we generally call equanimity. Equanimity is the view the mind has when it understands that sense experience is just sense experience. And sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant. But it's not what it's about. And a normal mind or a conventional mind thinks, oh, that's exactly what it's about. You know, I don't want painful experience. I do want pleasant experience. But that's a, that's a real setup for suffering because it's never enough, is it? No matter how safe we make ourselves, it's never stable. So as long as we're dependent on sense experience, we're in the world of what's ephemeral, trying to control, trying to make solid ground out of what's changing. It's always frustrating. That's what we mean by dukkha. This is, usually gets translated as suffering. But it's more subtle than our ordinary notion of what suffering is. It's that we can't find ground that we want. But it's, we think it's because I haven't got what I need, but it's endemic to sense experience itself. We'll never find what we want, no matter how beautiful you become or powerful you become, or wealthy or wise you become, you will never find the solid ground you're looking. Because 
the world of sense experience is unstable. It comes and goes. There's no permanence in it. So we'll go there. But I want to take some time now to open it up. It'd be nice to any of these energizing or tranquility or concentration that we've talked about tonight, anything that comes to mind from your own experience or questions you have about what I've said, or just generally questions about the practice, about the mind that come to mind. Yeah, Anne. Yeah, but I think what you're really saying, like just in a more generalized, like generalizing what you've said, Anne, is you're saying that the mind is naturally interested in what's subtle. And because another way of saying subtle is that what's gross, what's not subtle, is basically dominated by our concepts. And what is subtle means going beyond the concepts into the reality, into the more immediate reality. And the more immediate reality is better described as a movement of natural forces or energies, you know, whether you're talking about the body or the mind, it's a play of energies. That means we're moving more into the immediate reality. When I talk about me and John and Mary and you and Meg and these different people, you know, that's a very superficial expression of what's here and now. But if I talk about seeing shapes and forms, feeling sensation, subtle sensation, gross sensation, auditory vibration. When I talk about this level, then it's getting a little closer to... And when I talk even more specifically about there is a mind knowing sound, knowing subtle sensation, that's even more subtle, right, than the, the different subtle energies that the mind might intuit or tune into, but that their being known is really interesting. So we're always, the whole practice is developing a facility from going from the gross to the subtle. And the thing about that, that I think you're pointing to, Anne, is the subtle is always interesting. But what reveals the subtle? Continuity of awareness. It's like that's how we break through the crust of the superficial, superficiality of our ideas, of what we think is going on here. We'll never get beyond our concepts, our ideas about things, without the continuity of awareness. They're really like, there's, there's two realities. That, and a lot of times teachers use the difference between a menu, reading about a food item, and actually eating it. So, the idea of me being at Common Ground on Wednesday night is the concept. But right now, this experience, free of your thoughts about this experience, this is being at Common Ground on Wednesday night. And the words, this is what it's like being at Common Ground on Wednesday night, the only value is if they point the mind to the actual experience right now, sitting, hearing, comprehending or whatever is going on for you, complaining, wanting to go home. Whatever that is for each of us right now, that's being at Kamagana on Wednesday night. Not the thought, being at Kamagana on Wednesday night. There are two realities. But we're mostly in the reality of our concept. And we take that to be life. And so we miss it. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Other thoughts? 
about the talk tonight or about tranquility in particular that come to mind? Yeah, Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really nice because it can be a moment, a very, uh, a moment of wisdom and compassion when the mind acknowledges to itself, of course, of course, this mind is looking for solid ground. It wants to figure out this life problem or this life situation. But what's really going on in a more subtle level from the gross, which is the, I need to, uh, what's, what should I do here? To the, from the gross to the more subtle, which is, oh, of course, this heart is looking for definition, for solid ground, for resolution. So it feels like, okay, now I know. That's a solid ground. And out of compassion, we can just acknowledge, if it isn't one thing, it will be another. You know, so even if I do figure out this particular life problem, okay, this is what I'll do. This is the right thing to do. There's always more. Right? It never ends. So it's not to say we shouldn't contemplate or think about or reflect on our problems you know, on this more superficial level. But it's the way we charge it. Like, when I figure this out, then I'll be happy. That's a lie. No, when you figure this out, then there will be something else to figure out. Because that's the, that is the role of the thinking mind, is to figure things out. And we're going to do it whether you're a serious and successful practitioner or not. The thinking mind is going to think. And it should. That's its job, to sort of digest information and make choices, basically. But we don't need to connect that thinking process with real happiness. Because that's, that's not true. Happiness comes from understanding what that thinking is and what it isn't. And when we think figuring things out leads to happiness, we're in trouble. Because then we charge it. We may, you think, you know, the thing is we have to make choices, but we never know whether our choices, what they're go- it's going to lead to, because we don't hold all the cards. We don't, it's not a perfect system that can be perfectly read. We still have to choose. We do choose. Not choosing is choosing. You know, there's no way not to choose. So we just do the best we can but we can let go of the charge. Yeah. Or the charge to the thinking, right? It's like the weight the mind has put on the thinking. You better get this right, because otherwise I'm screwed. That's the suffering. It's not the mind deciding, should I do this, should I do that? The mind can do that in a light way, you know, in a skillful way. It can do its best to, in an imperfect situation, make a choice to do something or not do something. Yeah, first you do what exactly what you've done, is you recognize this is suffering. And then to the degree that we can um, take it apart and understand the suffering is the clinging to the thinking process. It's not the thinking process itself. It's the identification that it's like my savior or if I can figure it out. So it's that grasping, that's the problem. Because what we tend to do is address it superficially, which is I should just stop thinking. But it, all that is is more repression and it will just leak out somewhere else because the mind is charged. It's 
looking through the sense gates to get ground. But everything it sees through the sense gates, whether it's thinking or hearing or smelling or tasting or actually seeing or touching, whatever that is, it's always in, in motion. So it never gets the stability or the safety it thinks it needs. So there has to be a radical shift from thinking that safety comes in the world. Safety comes from understanding the world, not from the world itself, not from the world of experience itself. Because it can't be held to. There isn't any safety in the world. I mean, we kind of know that intellectually. You know, there's birth and there's death. Things come and go. Nobody takes anything with them, by the way. We all know this. This is not like new to us, especially the people here in this room. But still we cling. What we haven't done is the more subtle work at seeing that the problem is the clinging to sense experience. That's the problem. So the clinging to the thoughts, in your case, that, that there's some underlying unexamined belief that these, there's, that these thoughts can save me if I just get it right, if I just figure it out right. But when we realize that thoughts will always be just thoughts, they won't be ultimately uh, a safe haven. So the safety comes from the non-clinging to the world, not from constructing something in the world, putting together something in the world. Because whatever the mind puts together, it will fall apart. It will be unstable ultimately. Even if it has the appearance of being stable, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it has to be relatively quick. Yeah. No, I think there's, yeah, that's a, that's a really useful analogy, I think. The whole process is a grieving process because we have a particular view that we've gotten from our culture, maybe partly from genetics even, which is basically, you know, part of the survival mechanism sends the mind out through the sense gates because... What, as a thinking being, we're interested in existential safety. But from an evolutionary point of view, we just need to survive long enough to mate and to protect our offspring or something like that. So, uh, from an existential point of view, that's not going to cut it anymore, right? We're interested in a deeper question now, like how to deal with this existential anxiety of wanting safety. Not just safe, not just to reproduce, but we want safety for me, for my offspring, for everybody, probably when we're in a more kind space. But we don't find it. So the whole setup of being a living being, we have to grieve the loss of that whole idea that there's safety here. That there's a somebody that can be saved. That has to be transformed. And there really is a way to go beyond that. Because that whole notion is just the construction of the mind itself. See, we take it as a given. So that's why we don't look at it. But when we look at it, we see it's just an unnecessary construction. That the mind, it's not even something that the mind did long ago. The mind is doing it moment by moment by moment. But it's true that it's a real grieving. Like We have to grieve, even though it's not a useful construction... We've lived with it. You know, it's been sort of 
the space the mind is inhabited. So we have to, letting go of that is scary, like grieving when we lose somebody we love. It's scary, like who am I without this person in my life? What is this life without that person? So it's a little bit like that as the mind begins to wake up. There's both a very powerful, exhilarating, liberating flavor to the practice, but there also, and it's sort of back and forth, moments of real grieving and fear of what the known is being left behind and the heart, the mind is opening to the unknown. Like that experience of non-clinging is an unknown. The experience of a liberated mind, a mind not clinging, not attaching, not identifying, is unknown. And it requires grieving the loss of what is known, which in what is known, constant struggle. That's what's known. That's what's familiar for the mind. Struggling. You know, that kind of hungry, trying to keep it all together mind. Thanks for bringing that up. We need to leave it here. It's a couple minutes after nine. Just enough time to sit together for a breath or two. Understanding that it's okay to let go of the words. You don't need to try to remember. Feeling at home in the present moment. Understanding that women and men have in their in the past, in their busy lives, undertaken the practice to be more awake, more aware, and gained results and shared what they learned. And now we're the recipients of these ancient teachings. It's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can to wake up, to set in motion the causes for real kindness and wisdom and skill in the world, in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.